What would you do if it was your last day on earth? Think about it for a minute. Now don't get caught up in what might have happened to cause it to be your last day on earth. We're not focusing on that for the moment, but I'm truly wondering, what would you do with your time if you knew it was your last day? Take a minute, create and conjure an image in your mind. Would you rush to the beach and experience the wonder of nature one last time? Would you surround yourself with every person that matters in your life and create a few more memories? Would you put pen to paper or record a video so that you could share your experiences for, mo for those who might come after you? Would you eat your favorite foods? Savor those unique flavors one last time. Maybe you would do some of all of these things. But in order to do whatever it was that came into your mind, you would have had to have stopped doing something else, right? Whatever it is that you were doing before to make the space to do exactly what you would want to do if it were your last day, because the majority of our days cannot be the same as what we would do if it were our last day. There's too much to tend to. There's money to be made in order to put food on the table, shelter over our heads. There's a house to be clean, clothes to be washed. For our students, you have papers to write, homework to do. Our teachers have to grade those papers. We try to plan holidays and vacations packed with all of those special things and the people that we love so much. And we intentionally place some of that really good stuff of life into our everyday experience. But most of our days can't be like the day we imagined a few minutes ago. That is a side effect of thinking that the end of our days or even the end of time as we know it is near. It changes our schedules. Some have termed this as an eschatological misunderstanding. That if we knew that the end of our days was coming, we would want to stop what we regularly do and do something altogether different. Most of it is the work that we would want to stop doing, right? The things that take so much time and effort and strain but that is exactly what our two eschatological texts for today warn against. Now, many of you I know are familiar with the term eschatology, but for those who may not be, eschatology is a branch of theology that is concerned with the last or final days of the world. There's a great deal that has been said about what these end times might be like, when they might come, who will be here or not. But as Christians, we do have to be careful what we take to heart. We have to rely on scripture to determine what we should expect. There's another term that is important for us to have a grasp on before we dive into our text for today, and that is apocalypticism. This is the belief that the end of the world is impending, that it is imminent, it is soon to come, this is known as apocalypticism. 
Paul's letters to the church of the Thessalonians are steeped in apocalyptic thought. Those who lived in Thessalonica at the time when Paul was writing them didn't have it so easy. In an environment where many gods were accepted, they had made a choice to follow only one, to worship but one God. There was persecution that came with such a choice. We can also see within this second letter to the church at Thessalonica that there is this tension that exists between the already and the not yet. Now, the already encompasses Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, while the not yet is what happens after Christ returns, which many of them did believe would be coming soon. The people of Thessalonica lived in this odd space between those times of the already, of what God had done in Christ, and the not yet, which was the future hope, a future that they hoped would be free of sin, of trials, of death. Now that we understand a little bit more about the apocalyptic thought that colored the lives of the people of Thessalonica, we need to ask a very important question. Why were the people of Thessalonica considered to be so idle? That term, idleness, it comes up in our epistle reading for today, and it is not a complimentary term, quite the opposite. So, why were the Thessalonians participating in idleness? Were they not working because they were still reeling from a recent famine that they'd undergone? I mean, if you had gone without proper nourishment, who knows what you might do in response? Or was it because they did believe that Jesus was returning soon and that this was indeed causing that change of schedule, an eschatological misunderstanding, causing them to order their days as if they were the final days? could have been some of both that contributed to the idleness that the writer of 2 Thessalonians speaks about. But what is idleness, really? According to Merriam-Webster, idleness involves inactivity, or unemployment even. It is a term used to describe someone who is shiftless, lazy, and without occupation. Those are harsh words. George and Charles Merriam obviously did not take kindly to the idol. But is this the correct way to define this term when we look at this particular verse? The word in the Greek used for idol within this passage is actually not translated as lazy or inactive. It is better translated as disorderly or disruptive. It's not how we usually think of that term, idleness. Puts a different spin on things. Did you notice, too, that the same people in verse 11 that were called idle, a moment later, in the very same verse, were called busybodies? How can that be? How can you be both idle and a busybody all at the same time? They seem contradictory. So maybe inactivity is not really the problem in Thessalonica. Or at least it wasn't the only problem. Maybe the real issue was the type of activity that the people were involved in. Certain kinds of activity, maybe, should have been beneath followers of Christ. It is possible to busy ourselves with things that don't matter at all while becoming idle in doing that which is most important. 
So if the people of the Thessalonian church were not idle in the way we've always defined it, if they were busying themselves with something but not the right something, what is it that they were busying themselves with? Must have been something that the writer of the second letter to the church considered beneath them. Now one practice we should take note of that occurred often during this period of the Roman Empire is the role of a patron. Now a patron was someone who would provide political or civil service in exchange for the provision of food for their clients so that their clients didn't have to work. So the clients, instead of working for themselves, would work for the patron. This became a problem when the patron was not also a Christ follower. Now maybe it doesn't sound like such a big deal on the surface, but the patron could ask you to do anything, anything at all. You might be asked to go to a temple and make sacrifices to other gods on their behalf. Or your patron might ask you to represent them at the pagan temple by eating a cultic meal. It is easy to see that this type of busybodying could be lumped in with idle behavior if we define idleness as disorderly or disruptive conduct. These acts were completely against one of the core beliefs of the Christian faith, that there is but one God. So it is the laying down of what one holds dear and instead choosing to attend to things that have little worth that really was the true problem in the church at Thessalonica. Now I would be remiss if I didn't mention that this particular passage has been used over many years as a club to beat those who are out of work, especially those who are chronically unemployed. There is a misnomer that it is the poor we are talking about when we discuss idleness. That they are the ones in our society who are lazy and shiftless. Through my work at CBF, in our Rural Poverty Initiative, Together for Hope, I have to say that this could not be further from the truth. The poor are some of the hardest working people I have ever met. Many of the most vulnerable people in our nation are not unemployed, they are underemployed. They don't just have one job to which they devote their time and effort, they have three or more jobs, none of which have any form of benefits like health insurance or retirement, and most of these jobs are shift work. So you can imagine that if you are going to hold down three or more jobs by working in shifts while at the same time lacking adequate transportation to get to these jobs, there is little time to be lazy, idle, or shiftless. They are full up on shifts, let me tell you. The poor among us are not the ones being spoken about in this passage. They are not the ones living in idleness. And in the midst of doing all of that work, they don't have a single spare minute to try to fix the system that has put them into a place where they find themselves, a position that they could not work themselves out of if they tried, no no matter how many shift positions they took on. There are no bootstraps long enough or strong enough 
for them to pull themselves up from below the federal poverty line where many families have resided for generations. So what does Jesus have to say about eschatology? About the end of days. In this passage from Luke's gospel we read today, we get a glimpse of Jesus' thoughts about the end of the world. In the passage that was read earlier, we heard about when some were speaking about the temple and the fact that it was one of the most beautiful and impressive structures in existence at that time. To most Jews, the temple was a place that was built to last forever. So right at the moment in the conversation when the people are admiring the beauty, the longevity of the temple, Jesus butts right in. He halts them in their tracks. And he says, the day will come when not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. Now, who knows what those listening to Jesus must have thought about him at this time. This man has lost his mind. He thinks that this imposing structure, our temple, could ever be torn down and made into rubble. Who is he? But at the same moment, they couldn't help but follow him in that bit of prophecy he was sharing. For what if he was right? And so they probe him further. Teacher, when will this be? What will be the sign that this is about to take place? Now we should pause for just a moment here and ponder what is Jesus' purpose in sharing about the demise of the temple? Is it really to offer a prediction of things to come? Or is it more about shaking up those who are listening to him? That is the purpose of apocalyptic literature. As a genre overall, it is to utilize unsettling language, not to spread fear or to halt people in their daily lives, but instead to encourage the people of God to keep the faith in a very challenging circumstance, whatever that might be. Maybe Jesus is doing a little bit of both in this moment where we find him predicting and encouraging all at the same time because he could. But this topic of conversation leads Jesus into three important warnings about the end of days. The first is do not be deceived. Beware that you are not led astray, that we are not led astray. Many will come saying the time is near. Jesus doesn't offer many other eye-opening insights or predictions about the end times within this first warning, he simply encourages his followers to keep their eyes on what they know to be true, to not be led astray by those who would act as if they have all of the answers. But how are we, how are they as Christ followers to know who we can trust? My brother-in-law is an FBI agent, and when the FBI trains its agents on how to recognize counterfeit currency, they don't begin by studying the fake bills. They begin by studying genuine currency. They are taught to touch the bill because it is printed on unique paper that is not used anywhere else. They're taught to tilt it, to look at the holographic or glowing portion of the bill, 
It's not something, the color of it is not something that can easily be replicated. They're taught to look through it. Genuine currency possesses a security thread that is embedded into the paper itself. They also have to check for a watermark. When you get to know the real thing well, it is simple to spot a fake. The key to recognizing falsehood is making sure we are familiar with, in fact, steeped in the truth. Jesus' second warning is do not be afraid. When the difficult times come, and they will, those times, like Jesus mentioned in the gospel reading for today, calamities such as war, such as insurrections, the people of God are not to get overwhelmed by fear. Do not be terrified, Jesus says. As people of faith, we have to remember that God did not give us a spirit of fear, but one of power and of love and of self-discipline. Christians from across every age have faced many difficult things, and it is no different today. But in the midst of such calamities, we must take refuge in knowing that God is walking through these difficulties with us, alongside us, guiding us, and leading us upon our way. Now, Jesus' third warning is simple. Do not get distracted. When times are difficult, we can be overburdened by the weight of the world, and we can cease to do what it is that Christ has called us to do or to be who Christ has called us to be. And when times are good, we can get so wooed by life's comforts and joys that the mission of God seems irrelevant and falls by the wayside. We cannot be distracted from our calling to follow in the footsteps of the one who has gone before us and who showed us the way. The texts that we have listened to today are not a part of our sacred texts in order to predict the end of the world or to call the people of God into a preoccupation with reading signs and keeping timetables. Luke's gospel offers not a way of predicting the end of the world, but the spiritual resources to cope with the adversity that we will all face. They also give us a purpose in how to spend our time so that we do not fall into the trap of idle behavior. If we are preoccupied with the signs of the end of the age, we will neglect the needs of our neighbor. If we are caught up in predicting who the Antichrist will be, we are not ministering to the orphan or the widow. If we are consumed about who the elect are among us, or really anything else that distract us from bringing good news to the poor, then we have lost sight of the real work to which God has called us. We have fallen into the trap of busybodiedness. For in the words of Francis Ford, who in my mind is a CBF saint, she is a member of Alabama's Healthcare Hall of Fame, served as executive director of one of our Together for Hope sites in Perry County, Alabama for 17 years, as well as the county health nurse in that county. 
Perry County is one of the 20 poorest counties in America. And Francis Ford says this, Good news cannot be truly good unless it is good news for the poor. As our text from 2 Thessalonians reminds us, we cannot grow weary in doing what is right. And I would add that we can't grow weary in doing what is right for the poor among us. In discussing the subject of eschatology, Barbara Brown Taylor tells about something one of her professors said way back when she was in seminary, and it never left her. It was something about how the second coming of Christ in the form of the rapture was really an idea cooked up by some church father. But the truth, said her professor, is that Christ comes again and again and again. God has placed no limits on coming to the world. God is always on the way to us and in the midst of us in the here and now. The only thing we are required to do is to notice and to join in the work of creating the kingdom of God here on earth. For if we have endurance... If we do not grow weary in doing what is right for the poor, then we will gain our souls. Please pray with me.